0: Welcome to People, Places, Planet Pod, the official podcast of the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment, prosperous economies, and vibrant communities founded on the rule of law.
1: Welcome to this week's episode of the People, Places, Planet podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Backer. Today is the first day of COP28, the United Nations Climate Change Conference which is hosted in Dubai until December 12th. COP28 will provide an opportunity for all stakeholders to discuss the results from the first-ever Global Stock Take. The Global Stock Take, or GST, is an inventory of climate-related data that assesses where the global community is in terms of meeting or not meeting the goals of the Paris Agreement, principally the goal to keep global average temperature below an increase of 2 degrees Celsius, but hopefully not more than 1.5 degrees Celsius by the year 2050. The Global Stock Take is also intended to inform the next round of Paris Agreement Party climate plans, which are known as Nationally Determined Contributions, or NDCs, which are next set to be updated by 2025. The hope is that by sharing this Global Stock take data, Policymakers and stakeholders can strengthen the dialogue in terms of increasing the ambition each time there's a round of the NDCs in order to accelerate climate action. At COP28, the negotiating parties will have this data available to them to help them make political decisions about where the Paris Agreement should move going forward. The global stock take addresses climate progress in three key areas, mitigation, adaptation, and means of implementation, including finance, technology transfer, and capacity building. In this episode, I am joined by Angela Barranco, the executive director for North America at Climate Group, and Charles Leva, partner at Sustainability Frameworks LLP and the former chief officer of environmental and social standards at the World Bank. Angela and Charles discuss their key takeaways regarding the challenges and opportunities laid out in the global stock take with a focus on equity and environmental justice considerations. Angela and Charles, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having us.
0: It's great to be here.
1: So my first question is, what does the stock take tell us and what are your key takeaways before COP28?
0: It's pretty clear from the stock take that more ambition is needed as part of the Paris Agreement Party's commitment to fulfill the ambition of the agreement. The IPCC contribution to the stock take indicates that we have a long way to go. Greenhouse gas emissions need to be cut by 43% by 2030 if we're gonna reach the 1.5 degree target. And right now we're way off track the stock take also tells us that even if all of the NDCs were fully implemented, we would still face an increase in emissions by about 9% compared to where we were in 2010. Right now, the world is on track for a temperature rise of between 2.1 and 2.9 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. And so this stock take can then inform both the body of the Conference of the Parties, as well as individual national policymakers to find ways to enhance their ambition. And that's exactly what was the intent behind Article 14 of the Paris Agreement, that these aspects would enhance the actions that the parties would take to meet the goals. And In fact, what we've been seeing on a pretty steady basis is that each NDC has been more ambitious than the last. The good news is it's pretty clear from the material that was submitted to the stock take process that countries take their NDCs seriously. The vast majority of countries reported, and most of them show that they are trying to be more ambitious in terms of both mitigation and adaptation actions. Most countries that submitted new or updated NDCs have strengthened their commitment in reducing or limiting greenhouse gases by 2025 and going forward. And we can see in the global community, for example, that a number of financial institutions, multilateral banks, large private banks, have now pledged that they will no longer finance new coal plants and they'll stop financing oil and gas exploration. And just this past week, Germany, the UK and Canada have joined with a number of countries in communicating to the head of the Conference of the Parties that we need to move beyond a phase down of coal to actually phase out coal and stop the construction of all new coal-fired power plants. It also tells us that developed countries are not fulfilling the pledge that they made almost 10 years ago at the Copenhagen Cup to provide $100 billion a year in climate finance for developing countries. The needs for developing countries to help meet their NDC pledges have only grown. And at the same time, the GST is telling us that developing countries are sinking further into debt. To developed countries. That debt then impedes their ability to enhance their energy supply, to put in place the renewables that we need in order to reach those levels. So there's still quite a long way to go. And adaptation funding is even further behind. And this is a political problem because developing countries have always felt that the developed world has been focusing more on mitigation than on the day-to-day crises that they face due to the inability to adapt to climate change. The GST states that almost 3 billion people in the world are living in contexts that are highly vulnerable to climate change. It also says that over the last decade, that human mortality from floods, droughts, and storms was 15 times higher in these highly vulnerable regions, and that we can expect hundreds of Losses of species driven by increases in the magnitude of heat extremes.
1: Angela, what about you? What are your initial key takeaways from the stock take?
2: The primary purpose is for countries to really understand their contributions and look at that global picture. I think there's a transparency element to this. And so that is where I think civil society and where some nationals and private sector, other stakeholders who are clearly interested in the outcomes and are at the table can play a supportive and an accountability role as well. And I think that's very, very important to ensuring that the system as a whole moves in the right direction. I think the global stock take has a lot of users and a lot of different opportunities to help drive momentum for climate action at this time. We are seeing such strong commitment from the private sector as well as the sub-national sector to really come to the table and be in partnership with those national governments. So I think it's a really interesting time as the table of stakeholders really expands.
1: So the stock take ultimately tells us that the world is not on track to meet the goals set out by the Paris Agreement. So what are the obstacles? Why is the world not on track?
0: There are a number of different challenges. 80% of the world's energy still comes from fossil fuels. 90% of transportation in the world is also still reliant on fossil fuels. The world is struggling still in many parts to come out of the economic crises that followed COVID and making transitions in the short term can be challenging, particularly if the funding is not available to cover the marginal cost difference between fossil fuel energy and renewable energy and this is one of the reasons why development institutions are asking for additional capital from governments to help provide the type of seed capital that the private industry can then contribute to making these kinds of switches interestingly the global finance alliance for net zero has said that there's something like $150 trillion of private capital that's available to contribute to moving our economies in a cleaner way. But it needs to be supported by the public sector that can help de-risk bringing that capital into many of these markets. And right now, there's just not enough public sector capital to do that. We also have a world in which there's still about 800 million people that don't even have electricity. So there are energy demands that will continue to put stress on our fuel systems unless those are met. And ironically, in some of the countries where we have this need for increasing efficiency and electricity, some of these countries have recent major oil discoveries, countries like Guyana and Brazil where major oil companies or major parastatal entities are helping extract these and are taking the position, including with their own governments, that as developing countries, they should be able to transition to a cleaner economy at the pace that's needed for them to become more in line with developed country economies. These discoveries don't help in terms of providing the argument of moving faster to cleaner energy. Another challenge that needs to be pointed out and has certainly been raised is that today we still have, on an annual basis, approximately $450 billion a year that's contributed to fossil fuel subsidies and another $800 billion a year that's provided in subsidies for large-scale agriculture and large-scale fisheries. Three sets of subsidies altogether damage the opportunity to meet the Paris Agreement goals by not only leading to increased emissions of fossil fuels, but in the case of agriculture, also leading to the loss of valuable carbon storage in soils and in forests. So these are issues that have been raised by the international community for decades, but they continue to be large sums that are spent on subsidies that are not helpful for either the climate or for biodiversity.
1: Angela, what do you see as the main challenges, particularly from a domestic perspective?
2: In challenges, I think always opportunities as well. But a couple of things really pop out to me first and foremost, and we should call it as it is, is politics of countries across the globe, but especially in the United States. We have seen that a change in national government can have a a significant impact on the pace and scale of what can be done. And so what has been really interesting is to see how this time around, this administration has really focused on future-proofing some of the work that's happening. There are many things we can do, like infrastructure investment, that will move forward regardless. So that is where I think subnationals the private sector, uh, cities and states and governors and premiers really come to the table and shine like in moving these projects forward and ensuring that the infrastructure especially all the resilient infrastructure that's going to be built over the next couple of decades Is done at the highest standard, that it is also a mitigation strategy that ultimately becomes this new world that we're going to live in and be able to defeat this global problem together. So I would say that's one piece of this. The other piece is also just places where we've not necessarily focused on all the different strategies. We are seeing that change quite a bit. So with methane or global waste, there are some opportunities to sort of expand strategies and we're really starting to see people focus on those as well. I think it's both political will and personal will. And we see, for example, political will that was demonstrated in the Inflation Reduction Act. We
0: see it in what the European Union is doing through instruments like the Sustainable Finance Disclosure Regulation, the Border Carbon Adjustment Mechanism, the Green Taxonomy. You see it in California in terms of setting a cap on carbon. And then we see it at the individual level. We live in a city that has made installation of solar panels incredibly attractive in which people could pay down solar installation in a very short period of time, taking advantage of tax credits and sales of renewable energy credits, yet it doesn't seem to have had the uptake. So one of the things that the stock take tells us is that the tools are there now to bend the curve so that we can meet these targets, but they're just not happening. I think Angela is exactly right. that It is very often a question of choice.
2: This also gets to sort of a, a big thorny question we have, which is how the impacts as well as the mitigation strategies ultimately will live in many, many communities across this world and be a part of the sort of integral fabric of our economies and then of our countries. And so the will of the people is really important in supporting these decisions and these investments moving forward. And I do think IRA is going to be a very interesting example of that. I love to point out Justice 40 as a component of IRA because I see it as a very thoughtful approach to ensuring that the benefits of these massive generational investments in climate infrastructure and basically reorganizing of our economic structures through renewables and phasing down of coal and all the things that we're trying to do from a mitigation standpoint also have benefits that are spread and focused and targeted on traditionally disinvested communities. And so getting that right becomes really important when you think about the long-term adoption of this as part of our global culture. I think a lot of countries are very interested in seeing how that comes together and how we ensure a just transition as part of that to ensure long-term viability. You know, devil's always in the details, how it is implemented, who are the winners, who are the losers, how does the politics of it all play out is still to be determined, but I think. The scale of what is happening right now is so tremendous and I think is entirely a success of the kind of momentum and global shift that happened around Paris, right? So although it's not been a straight line between Paris to here, I think there has been such an important sort of paradigm shift where climate change is widely adopted and understood as happening. The impacts are here today and cannot be ignored. And so for us to be in a completely different place, but also where subnationals, governors, cities, the private sector, multinationals, but also very localized companies and local economies are really grappling with this question together is, I think, a huge, not success because we're not done yet, but is a huge step forward.
1: Thank you so much for diving into some of the progress that has been made, especially at the domestic level. Charles, can you tell us a little bit more about the progress that has been made globally?
0: Global level, we're certainly seeing a dramatic increase in installation of renewable energy. We've seen many examples in different governments of enhancing efficiency in the transport sector or the building sector. And I think those will continue because they make both economic sense, as well as sense from an individual quality of life standpoint. The international community, though, has another form of environmental justice issue to consider, which is that in many of the countries that are the largest emitter of fossil fuel, their economies and the livelihoods of tens of millions of people currently rely on heavy-emitting fuels, whether it's coal-fired power plants or diesel. And so, for example, one of the pledges that the developed world made to the developing world was to help with what's called the Just Energy Transition Platform. And in order to finance the move away from coal, We have to recognize that mostly in the developing world, there's still something like 15,000 active coal mines and that the economies in these countries are heavily energy dependent. They still are the countries where increasing amount of manufacturing is taking place in the world. And they feel that just as they are coming out of their status in poverty, they're being told now that they have to make these major switches in their economies. There is a lot of disappointment in the developing world that more funds have not been committed. And yet we see in the developed world, very often political debates raging over whether they should contribute more to dealing with What's a problem outside of their own boundaries? We see that in the debate in the U.S. over U.S. involvement in Ukraine, and it's a similar issue. Does the U.S. get involved in supporting these energy transitions in some of the large middle-income countries? part of the challenge that the multilateral development banks are facing and why Joe Biden asked for another billion dollars from Congress to enable the World Bank to provide more, to stretch its capital, to support more climate finance activities.
1: Thank you, Charles. I'd like to wrap up our discussion by diving deeper into what the next steps are. Can you also tell us how individuals can help contribute to meeting the goals of the Paris Agreement?
2: First and foremost, we need to have a strong global stock take that truly provides momentum for action for the next few years. And so I think all of the parties at the table, but also all the you know larger stakeholders interested in this are really going to look to what is produced to then figure out how we move forward as a global community working through those big climate questions. This transition from green economy to the economy is happening today jobs and economic impacts are changing and we need to ensure that our global workforce and our domestic workforce and our local workforce is prepared and ready and utilize this transition to really ensure that the scale of the benefits aren't concentrated in the few that we use the opportunity to lift all communities but also to invest in traditionally disinvested places and people and so I think I have a lot of hope and a lot of excitement for the opportunity here. And we need to also acknowledge that this isn't a problem that's going to be solved through NDCs alone. The public sector at all levels has to be involved. So not just in addition to people who are out there, you know, getting new jobs in the green economy. And what does that mean? And how do I get my piece of that? But also there's very intentional actions being taken as huge resilience projects are going in across the world to really ensure that our communities can thrive and survive in a changing climate. But also that's jobs, that's new parks, that's ensuring that we have biodiversity corridors that allow for us to also help the animals and the plants that live on this earth with us to also adapt. And so while it's a daunting and huge task for us, it also feels like if we can figure this all out, which I have confidence that we can, the other side of this could be pretty amazing. That hope I think is important. But to me, the word hope even just feels so flat. It's just like we are together co-creating a whole new world here. And so it's hope as an action verb, which means to work together to get things done. And the last thing I'll say is I think Charles and I have both flagged this throughout is that you know this isn't automatic. We must be positive actors in the system, but we must also push back and be political. We need to be in the system. We need to push for positive change and ensure that these things move forward. So it's not inconsequential who leads a government. It's not inconsequential who wins a local election. And so I think that is something that every individual can be a part of and be really proud of their impact every single day. So I'm very excited, cautiously optimistic we will get there and ready to roll my sleeves up with everyone else.
0: I really agree with Angela about this individual rolling up the sleeves, and I think it needs to include an enhanced collaboration among our educators and the media. We have to make people understand the science. I have no problem with people questioning the science, but then it needs to be in a dialogue that allows the different points of view to be shared, and the science to then drive the policy. And unfortunately, I think politicians are getting in the way too often of the science. And that does a disservice to the young people of the world who cannot afford to become cynical about their future. So often you see politicians talk about acting for their children and their grandchildren. Well, if that's the case, then we need to treat the science with respect and act on it, both at the global and the local level. Because we're speaking to an audience that has appreciated and supported the Environmental Law Institute, I think one of the exciting things about the Paris Agreement and the laws like the Inflation Reduction Act and carbon market transactions and new energy efficiency laws and regulations is there's a huge role for creative and enthused lawyers to help make this transition. Even the global stocktake itself, which again is an exercise both of scientists and policymakers, stresses the importance of laws and policies and capacity building both within developed and developing countries in order to achieve the ambitions behind this treaty. I think for lawyers, there's an endless landscape of activities that can be drawn upon to help achieve the goals that we've been talking about today.
1: Well, Angela and Charles, thank you so much for joining me today for such an informative discussion, and I'm excited to hear your insight post-COP 28.
0: Thank you for tuning in to People, Places, Planet pod. Brought to you by the Environmental Law Institute. We would like to hear from you. So please send us your questions, comments, and ideas to podcast at ELI.org. And if you're interested in learning more about our work, attending one of our events, reading our publications, or becoming a member, please visit our website at www.eli.org.